This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Good morning, Celebration. Let's all stand together as our campus has joined us over in uh, the Fox Valley and Stevens Point this morning, as well as all those still at home and who watch us all over the world on the internet. Let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us today on our third Sunday of Lent. We're in the middle of Lent, and we are pushing towards the celebration of Easter coming up at the end of this month, starting with Palm Sunday and, uh, and then going on to uh, Easter. What we're going to do is, on starting on Palm Sunday, we're going to two services at our Green Bay campus. The other campuses will stay the same. And, uh, and then we'll continue that. Uh, so we're going to go back to 9 o'clock and 10.30 services. The guys at the campuses will stay at 10. Uh, and uh, so that's how we'll do that. And then we'll ride that out through the rest of April and May and see how we do. Uh, and then uh, when summer comes, depending on what the numbers are doing at that time, then we'll decide. Usually we go down in the summer. I don't really complain too much about it. It's Wisconsin. How often do we have sunshine? So, uh, and I get it. A lot of people, at least you watch online, you're still connected to the church. Always do that. And as much as you can be in church for a variety of reasons. We'll talk about some of that uh, a little bit this morning. Uh, but uh, so, uh, and we might even play with the time on that one. Maybe we can move it all to 9.30 so everybody has more of their rest of their Sunday during the summer. We don't know. So if at times it seems like we don't know what we're doing, it's only because we don't know what we're doing. All right? Uh, they haven't given us a playbook on how to come out of a pandemic yet. Uh, we can write one, so maybe in the next 150 years, someone else can try and figure it out. Anyway, so we're, we're making it up as we go. Uh, we want to uh, pause to take our offering. Um, many people give online. We try and encourage that as much as possible. Uh, it's very helpful for us in our budgeting. You just go on and you just sign up, and it just happens automatically, and then you don't have to worry about uh, bringing anything to church. For those of you who do give with checks or cash, you can do so on the way out of the service. There'll be people holding buckets and then uh, give your offering to God at that point. Uh, the rest of us give online with our phones, which I'm going to do right now. You go to your message 
you're going to send a text message, and you're going to send it to this number, 77977. And then you put CCWI, which stands for Celebration Church Wisconsin, space, and then the dollar amount, with or without the dollar sign. And you hit send. And then it comes back, and it's confirmed. So that's how you can give your offering this morning uh, with your phone. The first time you do it, you have to uh, give it whatever debit card or credit card, whatever, however you do your deal. Uh, I think you can even sign up with your checking account, can't you? Yeah, so a, however you want to do it. And then every time you do it, it just happens automatically then. So it's just the first time. will be a little bit more work to do. But other than that, it becomes very, very easy. And uh, we're glad about that. Am I forgetting about anything? I'm doing okay. That's a new one. All right. <laughs> Uh, next Sunday, I, I will not be here. Uh, my son, Philip, will be speaking. I hope you continue to come out and encourage him as he grows in his skill bringing the Word of God and all our other younger pastors, because the only way they're ever going to learn is we have to throw them in front of you <laughs> so they can get better at it. I pretty much hog all the time, but uh, uh, we got to let them go. The reason is because uh, Deanna and I will be in Hawaii uh, next Sunday. Yes. There is a couple in our church who is getting married uh, on the island of Hawaii and asked if they, if, if they would bring us out, if we would be willing to come and perform the ceremony. And I said, yes. <laughs> so, for the record, if any of your children want to get married on a tropical island <laughs> and you want to invite us to come and bring us out there, you got to bring us. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, if, and I've done it for couples who have, have rededicated. They want to do rededication, like 25 years on. They want to rededicate your vows. If you want to fly us out to rededicate your vows on a tropical island, I'm pretty sure the answer will also be yes. If you'd like to have a barbecue on a, on a tropical island, and would like to fly us out to say grace, I... I think we do that as well. So uh, I just want to be fair to everyone, is what I'm trying to say here. All right, this morning, uh, looking at Exodus, the 20th chapter, verse, starting at verse 4, verse 4 and 5, uh, this is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. This is uh, Moses now is receiving the Ten Commandments. Uh, the first one from God is, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth below, uh, beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Uh, let me pause just a little bit on this idea of being a jealous God. People sometimes complain about uh, spouses or boyfriends or different things uh, being jealous and that it's a prop problem. Uh, actually, it's, it's just a misunderstanding of the word. And, uh, you know, it's, it's getting harder and harder to communicate today. And it's getting harder and harder for people to understand what they read today uh, without beating up on the educational system, which is an easy thing to do. Uh, people, uh, their ability to read and comprehend is dropping like a rock. It's, it's really, really rather bad. I don't have the answer for it. Uh, it just, it is what it is. Um, they say 100 years ago, the average American had a vocabulary of 50,000 words. Today, it's more like 5,000 words. It's one of the reasons we have such a hard time communicating because people literally lack the words to say and to understand. If you can't find the right emoji, nobody knows what you're talking about. 
Uh, and that becomes a problem. And some of these words, they, they get, oh, he's jealous. No, 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 that's not jealous. Jealous, God is jealous, and God does not do bad things. Jealousy actually means, if you look it up in the dictionary, to be intolerant of unfaithfulness. God is intolerant of us being unfaithful to him. We should all be intolerant of unfaithfulness. Now, this thing of somebody looked at your wife or you're just psychotic, all right? That's not jealousy. You're a little nuts and need to calm down. Or the same way, a lot of women. It's more a sign of insecurity. You know, I've seen women go crazy because their husband noticed a picture of a lady in a magazine. Literally, I've seen this right in front of me and she just goes off on him and says, whoa, check your medication, all right? You know, that is insecurity on your part. That is not jealousy, uh, and trying to fight this horrible thing of jealousy. Jealousy is actually a good thing in the proper context of what the word actually means, to be intolerant. In fact, I don't think we have a problem today in most homes because of uh, uh, too much jealousy. I think we have a problem in a lot of homes because of a lack of jealousy. Husbands who are doing intolerable, insulting, in awful things in their homes, and their wives just tolerate it. They are not jealous. They are not intolerant of jealousy or unfaithfulness. They're actually tolerating it. Uh, There are husbands who do the same uh, with their wives. Many husbands married to women who refuse to be uh, sexually intimate with them, and they just tolerate it. I think that's much of it. We need more jealousy in homes. People need to be intolerant of really bad behavior. People just put up with horrible situations in their homes for years, sometimes decades, and then it all eventually falls apart anyway in the end, and then everyone's shocked, you know. Uh, and this isn't a sermon about that. If you're struggling in that area and want advice, reach out to me. I will gladly give you advice on how to approach with these things. I know in healthy marriages, people don't have these problems. Do you know why? They don't tolerate it. They just don't tolerate it. If I'm flirting with other women and looking at things I shouldn't be looking at, uh, my wife will beat me to death. <laughs> this, she is jealous. She will not tell. Yeah, the healthy women said amen. And the same way, there would be hell to pay in my house if all of a sudden someone decided, uh, we're not going to do this anymore. No, 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 no. We don't play that game. Intolerant of unfaithfulness. We need a bit more jealousy. It's going to sound weird to your ears because you don't understand what the word means. But in the actual context, we need that. And God is A jealous God, he is intolerant of unfaithfulness. He says, I'm a jealous jealous God. And then he says, uh, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. This morning, I want to speak, and this is in the context of the season of Lent, time of prayer, fasting. uh, You get today off, Sundays are off. uh, uh, Whatever you've given up for Lent um, and reflection, repentance. I want to talk to you today about the struggle with sin. How do we deal with this problem of sin? Where does it come from? Now, there are two very uh, flawed theories on this issue. I'm going to deal with two of them uh, briefly this morning. This is not an exclusive study. We don't have the time for that. But just on a couple, I think, that are problematic. One is with this idea of generational curses. Now, a generational curse is believed to be passed down from one generation to another due to the sins of the fathers. For example, if your family line is marked by divorce, incest, poverty, anger, addictions, or any other ungodly patterns, it is said by some that you are likely under a generational curse. And they quote Exodus 20, verse 5, which I just read to you. But is that true? By the way, because someone says something is in the Bible, don't just believe them. You know, 
Oh, he said, he said it's in the Bible. My friend said it's in the Bible. And that one preacher said it's in the Bible. And I heard his talk. So, really? Look it up for yourself. Don't just believe stuff people throw at you. How do you think people get all jacked up in their heads and deceived and taken down horrible paths? Because somebody came along and said it's in the Bible. And they just go for it. These people say that this is in the Bible, this generational curse. And they quote this verse. And they quote it out of context and quite inaccurate. And it's shocking to me how many even major speakers have spoken on this issue and taught on this issue in something that what they are saying is fundamentally flawed and inaccurate. It is said by these proponents of this thinking that these curses must be broken and that there is a battle that must be waged against the forces of evil in order to be, uh, for the affected individual to prevail. We must break, in the name of Jesus, the generational curses that you're struggling with. But let's look at the verse all right? He says, uh, I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents, the third, fourth generation of those who hate me. First of all, there's nothing that mentions the word curse. There is no curse. And more importantly, who is doing the punishing? God. So for you to attack the devil for something God is doing makes no sense. Are you following me? So people say, we need to break the devil's hope because of the generational curse. First of all, it doesn't say any curses, and it's not the devil. This is actually God doing something. And the question is, well, why is he doing it? Well, he says, I'm doing this for those who hate me. Now, you have to understand the context here. Now, just because you have alcoholic problems in your family or because your granny couldn't quit smoking or something like that, you know, doesn't mean that she hated God and is under this curse. God is giving the Ten Commandments for the first time in the history of humanity. Up until this point, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really didn't understand much about God at all. Just that he was God and he's the God we should worship and follow. And They don't, they don't even have the basic Ten They have nothing. They are just a notch above a typical heathen. They really are. And God is bringing them, and finally Moses comes, and God finally starts revealing himself to these people. And he starts out, number one, stay away from idolatry. Do not do this stuff. Because for them to do it would be an uh, offense against God and, and an act of hatred towards God. So unless you're building statues and bowing down to them and going, hula, blah, blah, hula, blah, 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 you probably are not in this category. And this is also uh, uh, written to Jewish people. Christians who live under the law. So unless you're Jewish, this doesn't apply to you. Why does God say he would visit this against uh, people who hate him? And it's a pretty small group of people, 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 people. <laughs> because he's really strict when he comes along and starts putting in these rules. The Bible teaches us that God brought the law of Moses, and the Ten Commandments is just the first part of it. There aren't just ten. There's probably hundreds of these, all kinds of commandments about sorts of things. We just start with the basic 10, and then many, 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 many more are added. The reason is to bring people out of this pagan culture. You have to remember, it wasn't too far before this. He had to destroy the whole world and flooded everything. Why? Because people got out of control, and I don't think we can grasp it. We don't understand the level of depravity, of violence, of wickedness, of evil of the world at that time is beyond any of our comprehension. I think most people could say, why would God flood the world? I don't understand. I'm telling you, it was, it was intolerable. 
It was the point where God couldn't even take it anymore. It was so bad. And he had to do a big reset over humanity. And it started again with Noah and his family. And it's not too much further down the road. They're still having major problems. So he puts in the law. And the law of Moses was extraordinarily strict and had major penalties. One of the strongest penalties was death. That's quite the penalty. All right? So, oh, that must be for really wicked stuff. No, the death penalty was meted out for virtually all kinds of transgressions. If you, as a Jewish person, on the law of Moses this time, if you were to work on a Saturday, which was their Sabbath, you know what the penalty was? Not a lot of people did work on the Sabbath. It really got everybody's attention. It was jerking them out of this pagan thinking that everybody had done. If you use God's name in vain, you know what the penalty was? Death. A lot of y'all be dead right now. If you disobeyed your parents, I know no one here has ever done that. Yeah, you don't, good man. <laughs> you weren't back then either. They were going to kill you, I'll tell you that. It was death. You say, really? Yes, read it. This stuff in the Old Testament was intense. It was just to keep people in line until the Messiah came, and then we entered the area of grace. Thank God for his grace. Somebody say amen. amen. Yes, so that's what we celebrate today. So this verse says that God is bringing punishment on these generations of those who hate him. And it was harsh. So these strict commands are handed out to those who lived under the law. Uh, now, interestingly enough, even the Jews misunderstood the verse I just read to you. Because they also got the intention that God will punish people for their father's sins. And that's not what he said. He said, I will punish uh, the father, the kid, and his kid for those who uh, are indulged blatant idolatry against me. You say, well, that's not a problem. It was a problem for them. Do you remember the story? Moses is getting the Ten Commandments. And while he's getting the Ten Commandments from God, do you know what all the people were doing? They were worshiping a cow. In Wisconsin, we do not worship cows. I mean, he's up, this, this is how inbred it was in them. This idolatry, and God says, I will not tolerate this. He was being very, very intense about this. This wasn't just for people who sinned. And then they, well, the fathers and the sin, oh, everybody. Must. So eventually, the prophet uh, Ezekiel spoke into this. And look what it says here in Ezekiel, the 18th chapter, verse 20. And it could not possibly be more clear. And he says, and I quote, the one who sins is the one who will die. Why? He's trying to correct people who are using that verse over everything, like a lot of Christians are doing today. This is absurd. He says, the child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So with pure crystal clarity. He says, you guys, stop it. That's not what I was talking about. All right? So, now people say, well, my family has a long history of problems. Well, yeah, we all have long histories of problems. Uh, it is obvious that patterns of sin are passed down through families. But these are not curses that must be broken in some heated battle with the devil. Everybody sins, but just as culture, ethnicity, gender steer our patterns of sin in particular directions, so do our families. We inherit many traits and preferences from our parents that aren't always a positive influence. Anybody notice that? 
When we acquire a sinful habit or belief that negatively affects our lives around us, this is not a generational curse that the devil has cursed over your family because in the first place, God never said the devil did this. All All this is based on text taken out of context and used as pretext. If people could read clearly today, they would steer clear of these things. And people just struggle and they can't follow the sentences. It's God talking about people who hate him in the context of him talking about idolatry. Now, it has become increasingly common for Christians today to suppose that they are victims of generational curses. As such, they suppose they have inherited demons, ranging from anger to alcoholism to laziness to lust. And to be clear, while the notion of generational curses is foreign to Scripture, because it's not there, there is a sense of which the curse of sin has been passed on from generation to generation. Well, that's the idea of original sin. The first one was Adam. We read in Romans, the third chapter, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Through Adam came the curse of sin onto the world. Through Jesus, which is referred to often as the second Adam. In other words, the first guy messed it up. Jesus, the second Adam, straightened it out. Uh, We read in Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 18. Therefore, just as one man, Adam's trespass, led to the condemnation of all, so one man's act of righteousness, Jesus, leads to justification and life for all. Through no act of our own, we are born into this world already condemned. But thank God that likewise, through no act of our own, we are saved. Either way. So this was just handed to me? Yep. I didn't do anything. Well, I'm sure you have since then, but you were born this way in the first place. You were born under sin and the power of sin. The good news is that we get grace the same way. It's not something you do. It's done by faith in Jesus Christ. Thank God. Romans 5.19, for just as one man's disobedience, uh, uh, for just as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So anyway, if you have further questions about this, you know, and I always give out my email at the end of the service, send me questions that you have. Now, I don't want you walking around thinking that you're struggling because of some generational curse and that you have to be angry all the time or you have to be in sexual sins all the time, or you have to be in addictive behavior like alcoholism. Something I can't help it because of the, uh, I'm, un, I'm under a generational curse. No, you're not. You are under what all of us are under, which is the power of sin, but it's not something that just came because of your particular family, psychotic though they may be. Now, there's also another deeply lined thought, uh, line of thought on this matter, and I'll just briefly touch on this. Uh, that teaches that if a Christian struggles with sin, it's likely because they are possessed of a demon, which is absurd at so many levels, it just pops the fuses in my brain. And I won't go into it, and perhaps someday we will, or you can certainly send me questions if you have them, and I'll do my best to explain it to you. We just don't have the time this morning. But Christ and the devil cannot uh, occupy the same space any more than light and darkness can. Jesus comes into your life. He doesn't come partially into your life with the devil still in there. It is absurd. Jesus said, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. He says, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, not partial rest. This is just absurd. You are free in Christ. And secondly, you have to understand, well, firstly, I don't know, whatever number. (laughs) Do you know what possession means? People who are possessed, and I've seen people possessed of the devil. We don't have time to go into that. But they are possessed. They have no control over what they do. 
They are absolutely good. It's like these people who, you know, uh, get into spiritism and they start, you know, channeling spirits. And so a lot of them, they black out. They don't even remember what they said. When the devil comes, he knocks you over the head and just takes over. God does not do that. In fact, some people expect God to do that when they come to like gifts of the spirit, which we're going to be talking about uh, in, in a couple of months, about the gifts of the spirit, speaking in tongues, or all these other, they think, well, God's going to hit me over the head and I'm going to black out and go, lah, lah, lah. no, it doesn't work that way. The devil does that. How does it work? You have to work with God on it. We'll talk more about that. You want to see a miracle? You got to lay hands on someone and pray for them. God's not going to and make you do that. The devil does that. Unless you are blacking out, foaming at the mouth and going uncontrollably, Uh, you probably don't have a demon. And if you do, you're probably not safe. And we need to help you with that, all right? But this devil, the devil, you know, (laughs) we're talking before I walked in the service about references that I make sometimes that date me quite a bit. Like the other Sunday, I said, you bet your sweet bippy. How many of you remember that phrase? Bet your sweet bippy. See, just the geezers. All right, so nobody remembers that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Of which I am chief, all right? Uh, but you guys remember Flip Wilson? Anybody? Right? Yeah. The devil made me do it. That's remember? Oh, my fault. The devil made me do it. That's this whole thing. The devil made me do it. It was hilarious. And what's sad is that's become people's theology. The devil makes them do everything. I didn't I can't help it. The devil makes me do it. No, 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 no. Now, is the devil involved? Without a doubt. We wrestle against spiritual forces. But that's different than being possessed where you have no control. Because the reality is we have control. So it comes down, why do we get these flawed concepts of curses and demons in so many Christian circles? Uh, Because many Christians are desperate to explain why they struggle so miserably with sin. And we live in a world today, you all understand this, right? We live in a world and a culture today where it's nobody's fault. Do you understand that? If something happens to you, it's not your fault, it's somebody else's fault. If you're poor, it's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. Somebody stole from you. It's the man. It's the system. If you don't have this, I mean, everything is somebody else's fault. Whatever your rage, anger, whatever issue you have today, nobody is guilty because it's somebody else's fault. And I know people are desperate to think in those terms, but I got bad news for you. When we sin, it is our fault. It's just, it's just our fault. It's, you know, it is what it is. Uh, it's not some ancient curse or some controlling demons. It is us. It's our sinful nature. Many make the mistake because they've been born again that the sinful nature no longer exists. Nay, nay, I say unto thee, nay. Now, when you're born again, the Spirit of God comes in. Your spirit comes to life for the first time because we're all born spiritually dead because of sin. You ask Jesus into your life and it comes alive. It's glorious. It's wonderful. Now you're whole. We all, those who've done this, know the wonderful experience of which I talk. Uh, But the flesh... It's still here. It's still here. And if you just wait long enough, it will fight you back. That's what we're doing during Lent, is telling our flesh, shut up. All right? You don't control me. We're not going to do everything you want to do. And to realize you don't, you don't have to do everything you feel. Somebody say amen. amen. I mean, there's people who literally think this. They think if I feel it. In fact, I've talked to guys who have addiction problems, you know, like porn. And I say, oh, I've prayed, I pray God take this feeling from me. The only way he would take this feeling from you is to jump on you and kill you. You're all going to have these feelings, whatever lust, what anger, frustrations, desires you have, it's all part of the flesh. It's why this is going to die someday. This is what we talked about on Ash Wednesday. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. 
Why? Why can't we all just go to heaven like that? Because we are so, our flesh is so poisoned with sin. It's got to die. It is irredeemable. Only in the resurrection, after it's turned to dust, will we receive new bodies that are glorious bodies that God will raise from the dead. Your flesh is, every Christian's biggest problem is your flesh. It is what it is. No matter how devout you are in your heart, there's always a part of you that wants to do something wrong. No matter how much you pray, there's somebody at Walmart you'll want to punch in the face. <laughs> right? There's all, you know, there's going to be an in-law that just irritates you to no end. Shut up, in-laws. Uh, right? I mean, it's always there. It's all, if you are shocked at this, you're not paying attention. We war against this. And then the devil comes along and amplifies this thing. But it's not some curse or uncontrollable thing. We need to learn to walk in victory over sin, which is what Lent is about. Learning to say no to your flesh and yes to God. We've quoted this verse a couple times already in Lent. I'm going to do it again. Romans, the seventh chapter, verse 21. Paul writes, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. He got it. He understood it. I want to do. I love God. I've been born again. I'm an apostle. And most of us aren't apostles. All right? And even he says, evil's still there. It's always there. And he says in verse 24, what a wretched man that I am. Talking about all of us. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is our connection with Jesus that gives us victory over this. And how do we do that? He goes on to say, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live according to the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the spirit is life in peace. Peace. Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. You will be blessed. You will succeed. And it starts in your head. That's why it's so important to do what we're doing this morning. Whether you're watching online at home, you're on our campuses here, coming to church. You know what that does? It points our head in the right direction. It makes us spirit. And I guarantee you, and I, you know, I don't know who everybody is because, you know, <laughs> most services, the final amen, and they're off and out the door they go, okay? We're just fine. It's, but I don't really know a lot of you. Uh, but, and, and who's here? The people who struggle the most are the people who come to church on occasion. Your life is a mess. It just is. Why? Because you only do a straighten out in your head like three, four, six, maybe eight times a year. And you will struggle. Now, you can do that. I'm glad you come when you come. Good to see you. But you're not going to get victory. You're not going to walk in the life of God by putting your head in the right place a few times a year. You need to be intentional. That's one of the main reasons of coming to church. We sing. We sing these words. We all celebrate it. Well, at this campus, I don't know what you guys over there are saying, but what's the name of that last song we just sang? The Blessing. Simple title. And we're singing this blessing. And everybody just lit up because it's such a great thing. We, we sing these songs. It reminds us of who we are, of what God is doing in our lives. We listen to the sermons, assuming the guy's making any sense at all. This helps us to focus and think on good things. And we walk out of here. And what do you do? You're filled with life because your head is getting in the right place. But then during the week, you've got to work on it yourself. 
You know, be careful what you look at. Be careful what you read. Be careful. You know, I talk to people, they're, they're just full of fear. They're full of fear. Pastor, I'm always full of fear. Really, what kind of shows do you watch? Oh, I don't know. We get on Netflix and watch murder stories, you know, for 18 hours a day. And I get nervous when I walk in downtown. I get nervous walking out the door. What are you watching this stuff? It was a good story. Well, watch what's in your head. If it's affecting you negatively, stop. You know, there's this one show, uh, Dexter. Anybody ever see this show, Dexter? Okay. It's about a serial killer who only kills bad people. So it's kind of hard to get upset. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because they're really bad people. And you think, yeah, he should die. And, and Dexter kills them. And we go, good for you. And, he does. and it's really well done. Actually, I was on a plane, and the guy was sitting just a few rows over from us. Debbie recognized him. Anyway, whoopee-doo. So anyway, I'm sure right now he's telling something. You know, I saw Mark Unger once <laughs> on, on a plane. Uh, so, and so I started watching this. Uh, five episodes, I couldn't watch it anymore. I'm having nightmares all night long of ee, 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 ee. I thought, this is probably not good for me. All right? Now, if you're watching it, it doesn't bother you. I don't care. But be careful. You know, you got problems with impure thoughts. What are you watching? What are you looking at? What are you doing with your computer? Of course, you're a mess. Control what's coming into your head. This is the gate. You choose. Are you going to walk in life and blessings? Or are you going to walk a defeated life of struggle and death and sin because you can't control your head? And you say, no, it's not the devil. Maybe No, he didn't. You're not controlling your brain. Oh, my granny did it. That's why I did it. No, it's not granny's fault. Psychotic, though she might have been. You need to control yourselves. You have been set free. We need to walk in victory over sin, and we do this by putting our head in the right place. Somebody say amen. amen. All right. And there's more to talk about, but I'm out of time. All right. So let's go into our time of communion and uh, <laughs> point our heads in the right direction. What are we celebrating when we take communion? We are celebrating and reminding ourselves. Remember, Jesus said, do this in Remembrance why putting our head in the right place, reminding ourselves of what Jesus Christ did for us. And the more you realize and think about what he did, the more it energizes your spirit, the more you come to life, the more victorious, the more likely you will live a successful life full of blessings and not a life struggling with death. All right? Uh, Jesus uh, gave his body to be broken up, his blood to be shed, for the forgiveness of our sins. And we're going to be celebrating that in the weeks coming as we go into Holy Week and a Good Friday, Good Friday and then, of course, Easter Sunday morning. So now, uh, Paul said uh, in 1 Corinthians, he says, whoever eats or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of the Lord. He called it the body and the blood of the Lord. What does that mean? Oh, I don't know what it means. It just, that's what he says. So he says, examine yourself and then only eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without uh, uh, discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves, something you don't want to do. So he says, examine yourselves. Always examine, and we always do this every Sunday. We're talking about struggling with sin. And here's the thing with sin. <laughs> Again, it'll always fight you. And along the way, everybody struggles and everybody stumbles. I don't know anyone who has ever done this right all the time. I don't know if such a person even exists, even as a born-again Christian. It doesn't mean that we have to yield and let it destroy our lives, but it's always there. But keep a short account with God. That's why we do this every Sunday, where we think, okay, Father, forgive me, and I'm going to pray a prayer of forgiveness over all of us, 
And, uh, and if you can think of something special, specific, not special, something specific you've been struggling with, then confess it to God and get it before him so that he can strengthen you. Uh, let's pray together. Let's all bow our heads together. Uh, Father, uh, we partake, uh, partake this morning of the bread and the cup. And in obedience to the scriptures, we pause to examine ourselves. If we've sinned against you in any way, uh, thought, word, or deed, something we've done, something that we shouldn't have done, something that we left that we shouldn't, uh, haven't loved people like we should have, whatever our struggle is and has been over this last week, uh, for the sake of your son, Jesus, who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, we ask you that you will have mercy on us and forgive us of all of our sins and strengthen us in your goodness. And as our heads are bowed and people are in an attitude of prayer and reflection, if you're new to faith uh, and you've never experienced what we're talking about, being born again, having Christ live with you, giving you a life of victory over uh, destructive patterns in your life, you can do that right now. All you have to do is on your own, your own words, just ask Jesus to come into your life and ask him to forgive you of your sins. And you can start experiencing this wonderful thing that we're celebrating and start your first steps of faith this morning. Amen.